0: Imagine seamlessly weaving together your video, audio, and text with your spreadsheet data, all in one state-of-the-art research app. Easy to learn and use, Deduce is a modern, powerful, and feature-rich app that is changing the way successful research is accomplished. As a cloud-based application, you and your research team have access to your data anytime and anywhere. Deduce, great research made easy. Welcome to the qualitative report podcast. My name is Marty Snyder. I'm a professor and director of faculty professional development in the Learning and Educational Center at Nova Southeastern University. I'm also an editor and reviewer for the qualitative report. And I'm here today with Dr. Marilyn Lichtman. I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Lichtman in 2021, when she served as a moderator for uh, a TQR session titled, To What Extent Should Qualitative Inquiry Be Scientific? I was introduced to Marilyn by a colleague, Cheryl, Chatfield, Cheryl and I took uh, the qualitative research certificate program together. So a little bit about Marilyn before we get started. Marilyn earned her doctorate in educational research and statistics from George Washington University and has also taken courses in marriage and family therapy from Virginia Tech. She started her career as an elementary school teacher and then moved into higher education first at Catholic University and then Virginia Tech where she taught throughout Virginia, Santiago, Chile, and Caracas, Venezuela. She has also collaborated with Jim Bernal from Robert Morris University and Agnes Mungal from the University of Texas, El Paso on numerous projects. Um, In addition to the book we're talking about today, her most recent edition, the fourth edition of Qualitative Research in Education, A User's Guide, uh, she's published uh, textbooks on elementary education, um, in addition to the qualitative research books. Marilyn also serves on the editorial board of the qualitative report since its inception, since the very first issue, um, and also serves on FQS and the qualitative research and education uh, boards. So uh, one other thing, on a personal note, I have to say, Marilyn is involved in travel and the arts. Uh, She's traveled extensively throughout Europe and Asia with her most recent visit to Amsterdam for the Vermeer exhibit. Uh, She is a docent for the Krieger Museum and Corcoran Gallery of Art and she enjoys taking painting and drawing classes and playing bridge and poker. She told me uh, the other day that she's currently teaching poker classes uh, to her friends and neighbors, which I just think is fabulous. So um, Dr. Lickman, Marilyn, welcome. Um, Please add something that perhaps I haven't mentioned.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Marty. (laughs) Um, Well, maybe you mentioned more than I probably should have shared, but, my most, as, as Marty said, my most recent teaching has been poker lessons to adults. And does, that doesn't seem like it should connect to qualitative research, but it really does because what I have learned from these students who, who are all adults is that writing some lessons is that I've been doing for them is just a beginning in ways that people learn. In the same ways when I've been working with um, uh, Bernhauer's classes in Pittsburgh and um, Mungle's classes, and now at Ole Miss, by the way, where he's transferred a few years ago, is just reading about qualitative research is just the beginning for people. And so I've been trying to connect, teaching adults a new skill, which is poker and teaching students and uh, new users of qualitative research. And some of us who've been around a long time may also be a new skill. So maybe that's a little further further than um, we were going to go, but anyway. I think those are some really good
0: points. And really the foundation that you bring is that you are a good teacher and an educator. And and it's one thing to read about qualitative research, but it's another thing to actually do it. And your user's guide, um, really when I read it, I felt like I was in your class. Uh, I felt like I was right there. And so um, you bring in a lot of personal uh, stories, which are, are, are really helpful. And we'll talk a little bit uh, more about those in a few minutes. But I kind of want to go back um, to provide some context with regard to not only um, qualitative research and how you came to be an expert in qualitative research, but also your
1: connection to uh, TQR. Can you tell us more about that? Oh sure. Let me start with TQR. Um, way back in the dark ages of the 1980s, before the pandemic of in the starting in 2021, or maybe it was 2020, it's hard to even keep these dates straight anymore. Um, But back in the 1980s, um, almost all researchers who worked in education were doing um, perhaps very little actual research in classrooms. They would study some things from afar And there are various reasons for this, which I can come back to later. Um, But TQR, um, and particularly its main founder, Ron Chennai, he was a family therapist. And Marty mentioned that I took a few courses in family therapy when I moved to Blacksburg, the main campus of Virginia Tech. And among those students, I was a student and they, I was also their research advisor. And they were saying, these experimental and survey research ways of, of at answering questions don't really fit for family therapy. About the same time, several leaders in the field, uh, some of whom are still around and others gone, Uh, We're making, thinking about these same kinds of things. Uh, Weren't there other ways of asking research, um, answering questions, especially about teachers and schools and education? Um, And um, now, am I taking myself too far afield? Not at all. Keep going. Okay. So, okay. So now if you work in a school um, or are interested in education all the way from preschool to higher education and adult education we know that we can gather information with facts and figures and numbers. how much money do we spend per student how what's the graduation rate um what test score what how do students do on tests etc but we don't very know very much about what goes on in a classroom and how do teachers teach? um, And how do we deal with students who um, may have difficulty learning? And so some people came to the idea that, why don't we go inside a classroom and see what's going on? Or why don't we peek inside a classroom from afar? and some of those very early um, research in classrooms came out of the field of ethnography. And um, actually, I don't have the book in front of me, but an early book that Bogdan and Bilkin wrote was called Qualitative Research in Education, something like that. And they went inside classrooms and looked. But the only way they thought about doing qualitative research was sort of a mini ethnography. Instead of moving to another um, culture um, or the other side of the world, they could look inside a classroom. And that was really the beginning of qualitative research in education, which was then primarily doing the study of cultures.
0: And I think it's interesting, given your quantitative background um, and through your experience with marriage and family therapy that you discovered this gap or this need. Uh, And I think you write it so nicely on the bottom of page 17, uh, you write, well, quantitative research follows objective and clear guidelines, qualitative research most certainly does not. In fact, there's no one single thing that can be called qualitative research. Rather, I see qualitative research as an umbrella term that encompasses many different ways of studying humans. I think that's kind of where you're getting to. It's, you know, getting into the
1: classrooms, learning about the the what, the why, the how. Okay, and so for me, trained as a statistician and quantitative research and experimental research, it was very hard for me to... I don't want to say throw away, but to think about answering questions in different ways. Because maybe, maybe it was snobbery, if there's such a word. Um, the only really good way to do something, the gold standard, is to do an experiment. And all the other stuff is sort of anecdotal, doesn't really count, musings, we can't really rely on it. We can't do anything with it. And so I was getting pushback from my, while qual- my uh, quantitative colleagues, they thought I had lost my mind. There's nothing there. What are you doing? Um, I'm, and by the way, let me also say that when I joined the, the, the educational research faculty at Virginia Tech. I was the lone woman there of about a dozen or so guys. All of us were trained as statisticians and quantitative researchers, and we knew nothing else. So that's why I say going back some 40 years or so, that is the way, at least in my university, researchers were trained, whether they were in education or marriage and family therapy, or um, I remember having a student from veterinary medicine, that is the only way we were trained, they were trained.
0: And I think this sort of, you bring this into, into your book in terms of, uh, you, you speak about those times in the 80s when it was uh, really a, a male dominated field uh, and there was this disconnect in education. Uh, right, where it just didn't make sense uh, to the issues that were that were happening in the classrooms. Um, Could we move into the uh, talk a little bit about your book? Uh, Again, it's it's your your new book just came out probably the first of the year. Is
1: that right, Marilyn? Uh, Qualitative research. You you know, a book doesn't get written in a day because it was probably two years before it actually came out.
0: Yes. And, and uh, so it's qualitative research and education, a user's guide, and it's the fourth edition. So uh, published by Rutledge. Tell me about the book. Tell me what inspired you to, you know, to write this edition at this time. Um, what, what do you hope readers
1: uh, gain from it?
0: Maybe you can kind of walk us through that process. Yeah,
1: thank you. Let me try and do that. So the fourth edition the first edition, I think, came out in 2006. It was one of the very first books in, um, uh, specifically aimed at teachers, educators, people in the field of education, but used much more widely than those in education, and I remember reading um, a review that was done of the first edition. Somebody said, yes, it says education, but it can go way beyond. Okay, now think about what happened between 2006 and 2023. Um, and I realized that particularly technology, be- pre-pandemic, that, um, because that's another issue... I realized that so much had changed from these very early times when I was writing about technology, uh, both how it makes things easier for us in terms of of um, doing data analysis, for example, um, but also what kind of data we could collect, how could we organize it, how could we get information. So one of the my main purposes in um, doing um a new edition is to write about technology. And I realized that even now what I wrote a year ago, oh, forget, I didn't mention TikTok and chat and a um, learning and um, artificial intelligence. I didn't even talk about those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's probably all dated. Um, also, I wanted to look at The latest research in education and provide examples from the last, let's say, three to five years that would give readers an idea of what people are writing and doing today rather than what they were writing and doing a dozen years ago. Um, Because things have changed dramatically. Picking up on what you said, it's Qualitative research is not a single thing. Well, it's very clear when you read about qualitative research, read qualitative research that people have published or um, have done, presented at conferences. There is not a single thing, qualitative research. You know, and and you would mentioned this earlier uh,
0: when we had a discussion, uh, we were talking about John Creswell's book, Qualitative Inquiry and in Research and Choosing Among Five Research Approaches. And so you talk about those research approaches in your book, but you also talk about uh, participatory action research uh, and other types of action research, emancipatory engaged research. Um, tell me a little bit about those methods and why you um, You included them in your book now. It it seems that
1: there's an opportunity there. Okay, so I began to think about doing research in and about schools. And in a way, while large school systems in the United States may have research departments, most of the time, they only collect information that has to do primarily with test scores and money, counting. How many kids do we have in school? What are the test scores? How much money do we spend in books? Um, and so on. And I realized that school systems, even large school systems, such as um, near where I live in Fairfax County, Virginia, or Montgomery County, Maryland, um, or schools that serve um, large cities in Chicago or Los Angeles or New York. Even those systems do not usually, they're not the, the, the role is not to do anything more than collect, I'm going to say, statistics. And so usually the people who work on these, um, trying to do other kinds of studies, do not come from the community of school systems. They come from the community, usually at colleges and universities, or perhaps think tanks that get funded by the federal government. Mm. But for the most part, federal government is still interested in collecting numbers. So, it is so. I've been working for the past few years with people who are school people who are working on their advanced degrees. And I've come to understand that these people want to solve problems in their schools and look for ways not just to collect data and report it back, but try to figure out um, what they can do to work on particularly if there are students who are behind. What's going on with these kids? What about how the involvement of parents? And I've come to see that the the five qualitative research approaches that John used and I started with don't necessarily help schools figure out How how schools can be better for kids and teachers and everyone involved.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And I can
0: definitely see a a couple of things that, you know, when you talk about these new approaches and engaging um, the community as co-researchers, that there are certainly issues that come up uh, with regard to IRB. Um, and because usually you, you want to separate yourself, you know, from the participants, but with PAR, you're really engaging them. Um, any suggestions there or ideas with regard to how to get a, a PAR uh, research project
1: approved or have you had experience uh, with that? Let's go back to action research and okay. PAR, then PAR participatory action research. So action research is not one of the five approach research approaches that John Creswell and I have talked about. And some many of you have read about those. Um, just to remind everyone who's listening, you may have heard of ethnography or grounded theory or case study, but action research says, let's deal with some of the issues that we see in our school system or in our school, not necessarily an entire school system, but in a school, what is going on in this school that where we can make some changes in a positive way? And who knows best about what goes on in the schools? The people That's- who work there. <laughs> People who work there, not necessarily the people who are at universities who are only peeking inside of the schools periodically. Mm. So if you get if you are somebody who works in the school system and who feels strongly about your work and why you're working there, um maybe you're the best person to work on helping figure out what to study and you Now, there are some systems that actually use students as participants who Mm -hmm. organize things. But I would say for the novice researcher, I would see school personnel as being the primary impetus for this. Um, Although I've read about some schools where the kids are taking an active role, and we've all seen it on television. Right. Um, some young people, especially people whose schools have had some serious problems that have happened there. Um or you know, we know of the issues of bullying or um well, I'll leave it at that. It's it's hard not to be political. And we know in, in the United States, schools. It's locally um, controlled and state, and the federal government contributes less than 10% of the money. So they don't have a major role, unlike other countries where they're usually organized by state, I, I, I think probably France and Spain and the UK, not sure about Canada exactly. So the people who know best about schools are the people who work in schools and who live in schools. And I've been working with students these past several years, helping them see how they can design a study to take some action, to make, to make some changes in their school. At the very same time, IRBs, Institutional Review Boards at universities, they're in an odd role, right? Because the review boards consist usually of um, maybe a dozen or so faculty from the entire university community. I would guess most of them don't know a whole lot about qualitative research. I, and some of them probably don't think very highly of it. They're like my colleagues from 40 years ago. That's not real research.
0: So there's an opportunity to enact change and, and influence uh, the IRBs uh, in, in creating
1: awareness about these, these methods. Um, and what other? I'm sorry? I, I, I'm just agreeing with you. I, I mean, it depends on the university. It depends on how open they are. But this is a big conflict and also depends on whether the school system think is, thinks it's worthwhile to do anything. You have a mix of people. more, If we think about it, when we do qualitative research... There are more people to study in elementary and secondary schools than all the other kinds of things we might study.
0: And what a better time to elevate and empower, uh, to elevate their voices and to empower action. Uh, So I I appreciate that you addressed uh, those issues in your book. I was thinking too, Marilyn, you know, there's so many different methods and so many different ways to conduct qualitative research. Can you provide some suggestions on how to maintain quality and rigor uh, while at the same time being open and creative in your research design and your analysis of the data?
1: Okay, quality and rigor. Um, so I'm going to start with asking, I'm going to turn it back to you. What does quality mean to you? Marty, I know you said you, you um, are a reviewer for the qualitative report, as I am. And I think about the guidelines that we have, as well as the guidelines that other journals provide. What do they tell us about how we look for quality?
0: Well, I I look for uh, I look for the voice of the researcher. I want to know what their stake in the game is, why they chose that topic, uh, because they are um, a piece of the research. I also um, want to know, you know, that I can it, I can trust what was done. And so, uh, I guess when I review, I want to look for step by step, not only uh, what what process you used but how you operationalize that. How did you, how did you actually
1: um, implement that process? Uh, those are just a couple of things. So I like that. So, so the step-by-step, the detailed description of what and how you did something is critical. There is no one right way to do something which I find um, interesting because there are some one right ways to do things when you do an experiment. And people who are trained in the quantitative methods know that they want to do experiments um, where they get, um, they, they form groups through assigning subjects, not people, subjects to groups on a random basis. None of that is is considered in qualitative research, but I find people very confused about this. So I would go back and say the thing to stress is if you describe in detail what you did, how you did it, and what role you have, I'll say it again, what you did, how you went about doing it, and what role you play, you the researcher, that helps us establish rigor, but there is no right way to do it. For me, I've also learned that whether you're doing action research or grounded theory or um, phenomenology, almost all the time we get involved with looking and listening to people in real settings and I say looking as well as listening. So listening, we talk to them, they talk to us and looking, we look at what's going on, how a classroom is arranged. Um, One of my favorite things is most classrooms have a teacher in front and a whole bunch of people looking at the teacher. Um, There are other ways of arranging things. So looking, listening,
0: You know, you remind me of something, I was reading an article about uh, the post pandemic learner, and they had this visual of a, a big lecture hall, and there were, you know, only a few people in the lecture hall and what were they doing, they were had their heads down in their phone, and that visual spoke so much about what's going on in the classroom. Uh, So when I think about what you're saying about looking and listening um, and using different ways to represent the research
1: as well. Absolutely. So uh, earlier I talked a little bit about technology. One of the things we've learned in these past couple of years is ways to use technology to help us with our listening and looking. And a few things I came across that I had never heard of. Um, I think it's called something like walking while interviewing. I may have the term wrong. Two people walk along with their cameras and talk about what they see. And they point with their cameras, what they see and they talk about each other. For example, in a school, you may walk around a, of a um, sports field, such as a soccer field. Talk to each other. Look at what's going on. Look at people sitting in the stands. Look at how players interact during a game, um, during intermission. That
0: kind of reminds me of the think aloud method, right? But the, the walk, walking... Walking while interviewing. And I think the technology too uh, would capture that and transcribe it so that you just have to focus on what's going on around you and capturing that um, as you're walking around, which uh,
1: definitely is an advantage of technology. Okay. And so in the old days of doing qualitative research, we would interview, transcribe, by listening and typing. Well, all that's done for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in today's world, you can talk into your Apple Watch, and wor- Apple Watch and words, and it comes out in text. There may be a way to say something in picture, to say something and have a picture come up, but I'm not sure that I know how to do that. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are not ways to do that.
0: I'm wondering with OpenAI and ChatGPT and DALI, if you could actually do that, if you could describe something qualitatively and then have the AI support you by throwing out a picture that depicts sort of thematically codes what you're saying into a visual. Wouldn't
1: that be cool? Well, so for example, one of my favorite works of art by Picasso from 1907, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Mm. I might say that, and maybe a picture will show up that's in the Museum of, of the Painting that's in the Museum of Modern Art. I don't know, but we know technology has done that for us. And I also want to say one other thing. We also know that the um, no longer do we have to just look at what's right around us because... We can Zoom across the world instantaneously. We can look at each other. We can look at other things. Yes, we need to worry about permissions and so on. But instead of all of that, and now several years into the pandemic, the beginning when we started, we didn't know, schools did not know, excuse the expression, what the hell they were doing. Mm -hmm. Teachers, people in schools, parents, students. We've had several years now of that, and whether we're back in schools directly or looking or some combination of both. So technology has become forefront in making things, I want to say, easier. It still doesn't take away from, as you mentioned earlier, the role of the researcher, Mm -hmm. which is different in qualitative research than quantitative research. it's
0: definitely a useful tool uh, in, in all aspects of life. And certainly interesting to see how AI uh, can be used to help us as qualitative researchers produce better qualitative research, right?
1: I, I hope so. Now, are there some downsides? There may be, um, but for the most part, I'm gonna say the plus sides outweigh the minus sides. Um, if we use things um, appropriately. Um, anyway, that, that's all on that. I wanted to, um, if you don't mind, I wanted to read something. I'm on page two. Okay, me too. Um, I just want to read, maybe I've said this before, but I just want to, Say it again, numbers do not tell the whole story about schools and teaching and education. What about questions such as what and why and how? Why shouldn't mask wearing be a matter of discussion? What's going on in Mr. Johnson's classroom? What is it like to be raised in a single parent home? What does it feel like when you get bullied? How can we get more parents involved in the school life of children and so on? And also what about power issues between adults and students? How can arts be incorporated in a curriculum? How can a poem or a play communicate feelings of worth? How are those who have been left out of the planning and conversations be heard? As you can plainly see, these questions cannot be answered with numbers and facts and counting things. We need alternative ways, no numbers and no counting. Maybe I want to sort of start with that, but I'm just thinking about all these kinds of questions. I do want to mention one other thing, and that is for a long time, the voices of others have not been heard, whether it's others beginning with women and the whole feminist movement to people of color, to people who, um, people from the LGBTQ plus community, their voices were not really heard. And although we have some political backlash these days, I don't think it stopped many people And qualitative research can use many people um, to help us understand what goes on in the world and specifically what goes on as we work with teaching our children or teaching adults. I have a colleague who's volunteering in the prisons, teaching adults coding. A poker colleague of mine that's great. Um, so I'm just thinking about being inclusive, understanding yeah. who humans are, how we come to live and work in this world. And That's- I I truly feel that the book that you've
0: written and that you've updated it, I know you've updated um, uh, the technology piece uh, extensively, as well as added a chapter on uh, theories and a philosophy, but for... Um, for me, and, and I, I consider myself a skilled qualitative researcher. Um, there were so many uh, pieces of information because you presented in such a approachable way—a uh, way that um, that I can digest and understand. And I even I think for the novice novice researchers, and as the other person said in the review, not just for um, education but across the board, um, this would be a useful how-to manual um, with guidelines, uh, prescriptions on how to get started. Uh, I'm thinking uh, this is so important now, given the state that we're in and given the questions that you pose, um, not only in education, but many of these, how, what and why questions are across the disciplines. I'm curious to know what you see in the future of qualitative research, not only in education, but perhaps in
1: other disciplines in, as well. Although, thank you, Marty. Although there is some movement away from a, a, a various qualitative research approaches and there will always be people on the other side, I see qualitative research in communities around the world Um, as people become trained and come to understand the role that the researcher plays in organizing, whether it's getting a community together to make positive changes um, for the better um i see again technology stuff we haven't even thought of um changing so rapidly it's hard to it's hard to wrap your hands around it okay. um, but it but i see it in a positive way um i think as newer younger people enter colleges and universities and the old timers who say there's only one good way of doing something, time for them to retire, um, that we will find other ways of trying to learn about the world around us, the people around us, and to um, work with others, not just, I'm here to tell you what to do. We are here together to figure out how to solve our problems. And if we can contribute one little bit toward that, I'm very positive. I still see this in a positive, uh, positive way. Uh, and and by the way, TQR, uh, which has changed dramatically from, uh, it was a mimeographed um, uh, newsletter some 40 years ago to now weekly. Um, and I think um, I see Adam's, face in front of me. So Adam is one of the people who's been able to bring in ideas of podcasts and um, YouTube and um, weekly things that maybe um, some of us maybe do not have the technological skills to do um, but he's been able to do that. So I see TQR as a very strong force in doing this, as well as several of the other qualitative research journals and conferences that go on. So I'm positive for the future. Um, and uh, I didn't get to talk very much about my art, but um thinking about art, which uses a different part of your brain, helps you to see things. Um, helps helps you to see things in other ways and helps you to look and learn and think about people, not just asking them questions, but thinking about them, what they do, how they do it, and so on. That's, that's absolutely right. I know that I uh,
0: learned a technique through Ron about um, understanding uh, Uh, TPA, uh, Transcendental Phenomenological Analysis through mobile making. And so I set out to make a mobile and learn through my process of making that. And it was quite an experience for me. Um, uh, Marilyn, I'm curious um, for new researchers, for uh, those who are just getting started in the field, what advice would you give them? Um, Maybe perhaps some resources as
1: well okay advice and resources well besides tqr um i don't i guess there are two ways of thinking about this several ways of thinking about it. one is i might take a look at journals that specifically publish things that are qualitative and I've mentioned some in my book and of course I do if you think I have the right page handy I do not but you will find a page that talks about qualitative inquiry qualitative research the international journal of qualitative research and education and the journal that comes out of Spain qualitative research and education I thought they stole my title instead, I joined their their editorial board. So that's one thing. I also think that um, looking do, searching um whether a Google search, not just in the library, not just published in peer-reviewed journals, but things that putting people are putting out on YouTube podcasts, and just in general, a simple Google search of qualitative research every day you do it you will get some different things depending on what kind of search you do and what's available that day um the other thing i would do i might read a, a few dissertations
0: mm.
1: from if you're at a university from your university i might seek out Uh, people who are accessible. Um, I know, Marty, um, I've been accessible. I've been working with these students. I don't, I just do it because I like to do it. Um, I've been Zooming and using Blackboard and various other techniques working with current students. So don't rely just on published research articles. Mm, Um, Finding a if you work at a university, finding a colleague who maybe um, you think is, um, you'll have something to learn from him or her, or them or they. Um, That's Mm -hmm. one way to start. And I also, if I'm a school person, I might talk to um, a principal or a leader in within a school, I might, you know, where you can learn a lot from more than any place else. Uh, I found a wonderful article about learning from bus drivers, school, because they are the ones who see kids who take the school bus, who see kids interacting every day. That's, that's true. That's, that's a good suggestion. I know I have a reference in here to, to the bus driver um, Uh, I I don't know where it is right now, but bus driver article that I read. Who would ever think about talking to bus drivers or lunchroom personnel? Um, If they still have lunchrooms in schools, I don't even know. Some schools probably don't. Well, Marilyn, we're nearing our time, but I'd
0: like to know, how can uh, our listeners today uh, access your book, buy
1: your book, or get in touch with you? Okay, thank you. So, um, my publisher, as I say, is Routledge. Uh, they are online. Um, They—I um, just had an email this morning from one of my editors who said that she, I think, she was at the American Educational Research Association conference, and um, she had my book out there. I'm sure that the cover of my book is is meant to be appealing. It this. is eye-catching, definitely. Um, and actually, Beautiful. I have thanks to one of my editors who picked it out. It's a Getty image. No, I did not paint it myself. No, Jean Dubuffet did not paint it. It's a Getty <laughs> image. Um, and, um, and also, I can be contacted. Um, I'm not sure how to do this um, in this podcast, but my Virginia Tech email Maybe um, Adam has a way to put the link in when he writes a a two or three sentence, when we give him our two or three sentence um, account. That's Uh, a great idea. I love talking to people. And if you want to come to suburban Maryland and learn poker, there's always room at the table and you can join my poker class. I would love that. Uh, Marilyn, this has just been a pleasure.
0: I could probably go on for another couple of hours. It's, it's such a pleasure pleasure speaking and, and learning from you. And today we really covered a lot of ground, starting with uh, the, the, uh, the genesis, I guess, of TQR and qualitative research and how it's evolved over the years, all the way to talking about rigor and focusing on um, details related to what to how and the role that you play uh, in the qualitative uh, research that you're doing. Um, We talked about um, the technology and how fast it's changing and how we can embrace uh, that technology to make our work even better. And uh, one of the things that you said, we are here together to solve problems. I underscored that and I, I think that is so true that we are here together Uh, to, uh, to work with humans to solve problems. So um,
1: anything else you'd like to add before we close for the day? Well, I just want to thank you, Marty. So a couple of years ago, we were on this panel together about is qualitative research scientific or something like that. And I was the moderator. um, And I don't think it was ever very clear in my mind what exactly being scientific means. Um, But anyway, that's where I came to meet you. Yes, We've never met in person, as far as I know. No, I don't think so. I don't think we've ever met in person. Um, And one of the things I appreciated that you did is I work very hard to have this book accessible to everyone. So I write in, I'm going to say user-friendly or plain English. Um, and I appreciate your recognizing that. Um, I know how to write in a scholarly, scientific way. I know how to do every kind of uh, regression and analysis of variants you want. And I also know how to talk to people um, so that they can understand. Um, So I appreciate your recognizing that. Um, I also know that to be vulnerable and to say something about yourself will help others also reveal things about themselves that they may not. So that's been my goal in doing all of this. And from this (laughs) quirky looking cover of a whole bunch of different kinds of faces to talking in plain English and telling some things about myself. Um, That's been my goal in all of this. And you've achieved it. So thank you, Marilyn. And thanks uh, to Adam and Ron and everybody else at TQR uh, for their support over these years. Um, And um, Friday Friday morning, time for the weekend to start, right? It is.
0: Okay. Well, bye-bye, Marilyn, and thank thank you you so much.